This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is Christ the Center, episode number 127. Final remarks in our Christ and Culture series from Bill Dennison. Welcome to Christ the Center, your weekly conversation of Reformed theology. This is episode number 127, and my name is Camden Busey. And today, of course, we are continuing our Christ and Culture series. And as with all of our episodes in this series, we've sought to bring together several different perspectives on the subject. And today we share the closing remarks from Bill Dennison, who teaches at Covenant College as well as Northwest Theological Seminary. If you would like to hear each episode from rounds one and two with Bill Dennison and our other participants, Nelson Klosterman, Daryl Hart, and Doug Wilson, please visit reformedforum.org. There you will find our complete Christ and Culture series, as well as hundreds of other episodes on various issues in Reformed theology. But before we begin, let me mention, of course, that Christ the Center is listener-supported. And it does cost to produce and to distribute our programs. We just ran into our half-terabyte cap uh, for monthly bandwidth, so we can, of course, even at this time, use your generous support to help us cover our costs. And if you enjoy what we're doing at Reform Forum, please help us to continue to produce and distribute content like this series by sending us a donation to Reformed Forum at P.O. Box 27422, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19118. And with that, here is Bill Dennison. I will begin with my response to, um, to Dr. Klosterman. Um, I have a, a, a number of really quick things um, uh, that probably don't need much mention, but I do want to just point out that I think it is uh, that Dr. Klosterman's point on being cautious with respect to the use of the term glory of God, glory to God, or the glory of God, uh, doing all things to the glory of God, is, although true, uh, sometimes, and it is helpful, but sometimes in terms of specifics, uh, we need to be more concrete on what's being said. I'm really sympathetic to that because I see that phrase, uh, especially being in a Christian academic uh, 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 seen that that phrase is almost overused to the point of that its, its substance almost becomes um, very difficult to understand uh, concretely. Secondly, in terms of uh, an observation that Dr. Klosterman made, uh, I'm also very, very sympathetic to his his comments about distinguishing the phrases Christianity and culture religion and culture, faith and culture, Christ in culture, church in culture. Uh, I agree with him. They are all different, and I thought also I was very appreciative of this because it brought a further consciousness to my, to my person that these things need to be clear and distinguished. I might not even be very clear if I use the phrases even today, but nevertheless, uh, I, he's brought that to at least my attention, and uh, they, and I definitely agree and think that that is something uh, that would be 
very, very profitable for a separate discussion. The third area um, relates to, um, again, I think I've already applauded him on this, but I'm going, to pers- I'm going to do it again, concerning how he is pointing out the relationship or the distinction of natural law as it is taught in the Canons of Dort uh, 344. I do want to very much, again, applaud Klosterman here uh, strongly especially the attention he brings to the final two sentences of that uh, confessional statement. Um, I maintain, personally, the affirmation of of Dort being truly biblical in those two sentences, and I agree with Dort there and also Dr. Klosterman's bringing that to our attention. And I think that... Dr. Klosterman has his finger on the pulse of the present problem in certain reform circles on the issue of natural law. Uh, That is, the activity by some students of the natural law tradition now endorsed in the reform and and its reform connotation to turn it into an optimistic claim. Dr. Klosterman uses that, put that in quotes, that's his phrase for a positive point of contact with the unbeliever in the civil sphere. In the judgment of Dr. Klosterman and myself, this optimistic and positive projection of natural law into the civil sphere seems to be counter to a biblical understanding of natural law as exegeted by Dort. And then this, and this brings me to a, a fourth observation uh, concerning Dr. Klosterman's uh, uh, attentive comments, uh, and that is his, uh, his drawing our attention to the Belgic Confession, Article Number 36, um, the section or article on this magistrate or civil government. Dr. Klosterman states that he is puzzled by some of the omissions in our discussion so far on politics and statecraft as pertains to Article Number 36 of the Belgian Confession. Specifically, Article 36 went through some revisions under the leadership of Abraham Kuyper beginning in 1905. Dr. Klosterman has pointed that out to us. And those revisions retain, retain two crucial elements, um, that the state is to, one, protect, and two, promote the kingdom of Christ. Dr. Klosterman is concerned that we have neglected or ignored that aspect of our confessional secondary standards. Now, Dr. Klosterman is absolutely correct in noting, and I that, and I quote here from him, what we do with Article 36 in terms of concrete political office is very important and a complex question. Dr. Klosterman's plea is to go back and agree on what is there and work from there concerning its implications and formulations. Since this is our last response, we will not get opportunity to interact with those Dr. Klosterman's plea. But I would like to respond with some observations here. First of all, 
when we enter into a discussion of the civil government in our confessional standards, we need to understand that on this specific issue, we are dealing with an evolving political landscape. This is clear on the basis that revisions were made in light of the post-Holy Roman Empire and post-Enlightenment eras in 1905 to Article Number 36. Let me also point out that revisions were also made of the Westminster Confession, Chapter 23 on the Civil Magistrate. Section 3 is the specific here, Section 3 of Chapter 23 of the Westminster Confession, in 1788 by the Presbyterian Church USA. Secondly, I would point out in terms of this, this, issue, this specific issue, I would point out that it is imperative to note the dates of revision. The 1905 revision of Article Number 36 of the Belgic Confession is on the heels of Kuyper's prime ministership in Holland. Keeping this in mind, we must not forget that since the reign of William the Silent in the Netherlands and the first constitutional drafts of the Republic in 1579, the Dutch Reformed Church was the only official religious organization recognized in the Netherlands, although other religions were tolerated. And now I'm going to be giving a real quick history here because uh, we don't have time, but as the secularization of the Netherlands becomes increasingly pervasive in the culture, 19th century post-enlightenment secularization presents problems for Dutch Calvinism within, within its borders. Kuyper, as one, wished for the separation of church and state in areas such as education, as we all know, as he founded the Free University. Mm -hmm. And yet, and yet, he invoked the traditional position that the state is to protect and promote the kingdom of Christ. Interestingly, in the 1788 revision of the Westminster Confession, Chapter 23, Section 3, you have language of protection used, but the language of promotion is absent. It is not there. Hmm. I would also point out that where the term protect appears in Westminster Confession 23.3, and it appears twice in that section, I would note that it appears in the context in which it is viewed, quote, the duty of the civil magistrate, and then to protect, to protect the freedom of worship, the freedom of religious worship. Mm. The 1788 revision reflects back upon the mood and the tone of the American Constitution, the new political landscape. As I see it, the Belgic Confession is placing the term protection under the rubric of the Kingdom of Christ, Belgic Confession Article 36, 
whereas the Westminster Confession 23.3, protection is being placed in the context of the freedom of religious worship. I see this as a big difference here, which is controlled by the political landscape of the Netherlands in post-19th century, and the American Constitution with respect to the Westminster Confession in post-1776. Furthermore, in in reminder, Westminster Confession 23.3 never uses the language that the state is to promote the kingdom of Christ or the gospel. So if we agree that this is what the Belgic Confession, Article 36, and Westminster Confession 23.3 says, then we can see the complexity with dealing on this particular point with a normative direction from the confessional standards on the function of the state in relationship to the kingdom of Christ. Also allow me to raise another concern in connection to a point Dr. Klosterman has wonderfully enlightened us. Once we understand what the Belgic Confession Article 36 in Westminster Confession 23.3 says, and note the complexities of interpretation and implementation, then we still need to understand the correct biblical reflection of the Canons of Dort 3.4, Section 4 on natural law to the state, especially its last two sentences. Specifically, how do we integrate the last two sentences of Dort 344 with what is being said in the Belgic Confession, Article 36, concerning to protect and promote the kingdom of Christ or the Westminster Confession of Faith 23.3 to protect religious freedom. Now let me try to be a little bit more specific here uh, so that people can understand and f- understand uh, the argument here. And keep in mind, obviously, that Dr. Klosterman did not refer to the Westminster Confession. I have also raised that context just because of my own ecclesiastical vows in my own denomination of the OPC. But because of the dominant position that natural law occupies in political theory and philosophy in that tradition, then the fallen view of natural law the fallen view of natural law as exposited in Dort 344 must be applied to the discussion on civil government in Articles 36 of the Belgic Confession and the Westminster Confession 23.3. My point here is this. If natural law as applied to the things of the natural world and civil world is to understand that fallen humanity is incapable of using natural law correctly, that's what Dirk is saying, 344, then why would we expect, here's the question, why would we expect any secular government 
to, quote, protect and promote the kingdom of Christ. That would be a discussion in terms of that that would have to be worked out in terms of the consistency in the integration of our confessional standards. So that is the issues I raise with respect to the comments that Dr. Kosterman has, has brought before our attention. Now I would like to uh, direct myself uh, to Dr. Hart's comments. Uh, Dr. Hart has graciously raised an issue with me specifically, <laughs> especially the conception of epistemological self-consciousness. According to Hart, this phrase in the Kuyperian and Vantillian tradition seems to favor one, philosophers, two, the mind, and three, it has the possibility of being elitist. These characteristics have the possibility of leaving some Christians who do not understand or comprehend what epistemological self-consciousness means or is out of the loop. <laughs> I think I have the picture that Dr. Cart raises here. I think I have this correct. At least I am hoping that I have it correct concerning his, 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 the issues he has raised. So let me respond by going in a number of directions. First of all, it is a mistake to think that Van Til's use of the phrase epistemological self-consciousness has its core, has at its core, a sophisticated conception directed to and by philosophers, that the sole purpose of the phrase is viewed by virtue of the exercise of the philosophical mind. It is true that in the world of post-Kantian idealism, that Van Til applied the phrase very effectively to his own philosophical theological analysis and criticism of specific movements in philosophy, for example, positivism, pragmatism, existentialism. He applied it in theology, in education, in the sciences. Yes, as Dr. Hart suggests, across the board of the academic curriculum of the university. But, and I will repeat, but, <laughs> Van Til's notion of epistemological self-consciousness is not being shaped or molded by post-Kantian idealism and an elite status of the philosophical mind. Rather, Van Til's notion of epistemological self-consciousness is shaped and molded by Christ's teaching that out of the heart flows the issues of life. Van Til's notion of epistemological self-consciousness is very simple. And if I'm going to, if I can just go uh, on an excursus for a second, second here at this point, when I make that point, that his view of epistemological self-consciousness is very simple, I do wish constantly that the critics of Van Til could get beyond the philosophical, theological language he uses and grasp the simplicity, the simplicity of his thinking. Now let me continue. 
for Van Til here then, epistemological self-consciousness is simply the heart of faith in the believer who knows epistemology, who knows Christ. Yes, epistemology is a sophisticated philosophical term, but in simplicity, who knows Christ as the Redeemer, who has freed the believer from union with Adam's sin. Epistemological self-consciousness is at the center of saving faith. Every single believer knows Christ in a saving way. And it is impossible to know Christ as Redeemer and not be self-conscious of that relationship with Christ. Simply put, every Christian, every believer, lives their lives as being conscious of knowing Christ. The Christian baker does that, mechanic, tree surgeon, the salesperson, the doctor, the nurse, the athlete, the clerk, the banker, the CEO, the husband, the wife, the widow, you just plug it in with whoever you want. All are asked not to deny, betray, compromise their service of Christ. That is, not to deny, betray, or compromise their faith in Christ and their knowledge of Christ. Hence, for Van Til, epistemological self-consciousness is not only at the center of saving faith, but even more specifically, it is at the center of the believer's union with Christ and all the benefits of salvation, a union conceived by the Holy Spirit. In this sense, every believer had better be self-conscious of knowing Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, or else one, one better question whether one is a believer or whether one knows Christ at all. Hence, every believer in their daily walk in Christ, even as it applies to their vocation, must live out of their epistemological self-consciousness, their union with Christ. Now, it just so happens that for Van Til, living out of union with his Christ meant applying epistemological self-consciousness to philosophical theological, and scientific areas. Each believer is asked to do the same wherever their walk in Christ takes them. Hence, even Dr. Hart cannot claim to be a Christian church historian without epistemological self-consciousness. Now, it may be another question how Dr. Hart integrates his self-conscious knowledge of his Savior into his discipline, into church history. But nevertheless, if he is in union with Christ, he does have a consciousness of knowing Christ, which will affect how he looks and views and writes about church history. Secondly, in terms of this issue, but for Kvantil, there are further specifics about epistemological self-consciousness. Van Til is emphatic about the content of our self-conscious knowledge of Christ. 
The content of our self-conscious knowledge of Christ must be shaped, molded, and manifested by the truth of the biblical of biblical revelation summarized in the Reformed confessions and ecumenical creeds of the early church. At the very foundation of Van Til's notion of epistemological self-consciousness is not an elitist philosophical concept that accents the mind. Rather, at the foundation of our covenant, at the foundation is our covenant bond with Christ revealed in the progressive revelation of God's Word. Indeed, in this sense, despite Dr. Clark's question, the, the confessional standards actually teaches, teaches the epistemological self-consciousness that Van Til is articulating and defending. Examples, Westminster Confession, Chapter 1, Section 1. You read, a knowledge of God is necessary unto salvation. Westminster Confession 4.2, where male and female are endued with knowledge. In that same section 4.2 of Westminster Confession, we are reminded that the first male and female were told not to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The knowledge, you see, or epistemology gained by eating of that tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, is antithetical to the true knowledge, epistemology, if you will, of God's righteous word. In Westminster Confession 8.3, Christ is described as having, quote, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, unquote. We are truly recipients of that knowledge when the Spirit brings us into union with Christ. Also, for your listeners, they may want to check out Shorter Catechism questions 10, 12, 31, 97. Larger Catechism, questions 17, 20, 92, 171. Perhaps Shorter Catechism, question and answer 31, present, presents in a succinct manner what Van Til means by epistemological self-consciousness. It is the question of 31 Shorter Catechism is what is effectual calling? The answer, effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. You can see their knowledge being a key component, you see, of the Spirit's work in terms of work of redeeming and saving us in Christ. The confession is not written with post-Kantian idealism in mind. <laughs> the mind being reflected upon here is exposited by Paul, and I would and, um, encourage people to read Philippians 2, 
Philippians 2 concerning that, uh, concerning the biblical understanding of the mind that is in Christ. There are so many biblical texts that are relevant here, but one may wish to follow Paul's use and application of the term knowledge in 2 Corinthians 2.14, and often the classic apologetic passage, 2 Corinthians 10.5. Now, this brings me to a third observation. Dr. Hart continues, and he raises a very fine practical issue directed towards me, related still to the notion of epistemological self-consciousness. If I have the issue correctly, he raises the following question to me. How does epistemological self-consciousness work with the proximate, that is, the pilgrim image in Scripture, and ultimate, that is, the final eschatological understanding of things? Let's get more specific. He points out the preacher Ecclesiastes says all is vanity with respect to the things of, in this world. Now, how does that relate to ultimate truth? In this dilemma comes Dr. Hart's concern. In this tension between the vanity of the temporal and the final eschatological realm, will not our epistemological self-consciousness function in a state, state of doubleness instead of coherence? There is a double-mindedness between the things we do in our daily lives terms of our relationship with the world and culture and all that, and what we do in the world to come. This is a good point that Dr. Hart raises. I would contend that New Testament eschatology instructs the people of God to live out of their union with Christ in the heavenly places, already presently enjoying the believer already presently enjoys the eschaton in faith union with Christ in heaven. I think this is extremely clear in Ephesians 1, 3, mm-hmm. 2, 6, and especially, and very well succinctly put in Colossians 3, 1 through 4. And this is true as we, or as the believer, endures and perseveres in the passing away of this world. We already live in the age to come as we continue to endure in the present evil age. But we are only citizens of heaven. We are not citizens of the present evil age, Philippians 3.20. With Paul... My eschatological self-consciousness is not a double-mindedness since I have the mind of Christ Jesus in me. My union with Christ's mind alone allows me to have a coherent understanding of the eternal and temporal because only from my status of union with Christ in the heavenly places do I understand that the temporal and the vanities of the temporal are passing away 
and giving way to our final eternal inheritance in Christ. I would maintain that this is one aspect of the ministry of Christ to us through his spirit. Only by our focus upon what we already have eternally in Christ can the believer endure tragedy, suffering, persecution, and the onslaughts of the non-Christian world, the valleys and the mountains, so to speak, of life's pilgrimage on earth in our journey. And only from this perspective, as I always like to give as an example and always get a chuckle when I use this in a sermon or in the classroom, when we look at things in terms of the eternal into the temporal, then we fully understand how trivial and stupid it is to be frustrated about losing our keys in the house. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> but we all have that tendency, and right. we all do it. <laughs> exactly. It's an unrealized so, eschatology. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so a coherent understanding of epistemological self-consciousness ceases to be coherent when we set our hearts on the temporal, become self-absorbed in our own life, our own selfishness when we seek and set our mind upon the things of the flesh, the earth, Colossians 3 again, instead of knowing that our life is hid with Christ in God. Let me say, it is this eschatological self-consciousness that I find lacking here, and this is again a sort of little bit of a diversion here, but nevertheless I think a portion appropriate. It is this epistemological self-consciousness that I find lacking in those strongly defending the two kingdoms. There I find the danger of double-mindedness between Christ's kingdom and the civil kingdom and all the attention that the civil kingdom is given in that, in that context. So that's my point concerning coherence. Now, nevertheless, you know, how this is all worked out every day, that's the struggle. It's the struggle. And uh, as we all know, we only wish we could live it better. <laughs> yeah. So now, uh, let me change a uh, change of subjects here uh, once again. Uh, going back to comments, uh, applying what I have just remarked about uh, to Dr. Hart to a earlier comments that he has in his response. Now much more can be said here, but allow me to build on what I said about epistemological self-consciousness and extend it into Dr. Hart's discomfort with what was being said about the antithesis. Dr. Hart asks, what is the nature of the antithesis? And how far does it reach? Especially how far can it reach outside the church? And how far does it extend in areas outside the church? 
To provide specific directives here is difficult indeed. Hart, Dr. Hart's question is difficult to provide concrete answers. Even so, if we are going to address his question, we must start on the right note as found in God's Word. Biblical historical revelation places us in the antithesis. We cannot get out of it. God places us in the antithesis from the beginning. The kingdom of God versus the kingdom of Satan. The seed of the woman versus the seed of the serpent. That is the given in which history exists. In light of the fall into sin, God condescends into the world to make a covenant bond with his elect people in Jesus Christ. This covenant of God's grace is understood under the pronouncement of God. I will be your God and you shall be my people. The biblical notion of covenant means set apart, separate, distinct. The covenant implemented by God's sovereign grace and will is antithetical at its core. There are the elect people in Christ in contrast to those who are the object of God's grace for being outside of Christ, the unbelievers from among the nations. This directive is so clearly set in place by the Lord in the Old Testament. The, distinct, the distinctiveness of Israel is set by the Lord on every page in contrast to the lifestyle of the unbelieving nations. I think it is biblically clear to say that a covenant consciousness, that is, knowing your conscious saving bond of union with Christ, is an antithetical consciousness. We are not to be like the unbelieving nations, living a life of the flesh, an earthly life. And possibly a good summation of this idea comes in just by reading Deuteronomy 6 and 7. Now, our, our covenant consciousness affects everything we do. It carries into our vocations, into our view of the arts, etc. In the Old Testament, this can be seen in the first fruits of the Israelites' labor that was brought in gratitude to their covenant God, the grain, the oil, the flocks, etc. The vocation, the labors of our hands are never to be viewed outside our covenantal union with the triune God of the Bible. We have part separated for the distinct life of holiness and righteousness in Christ, performed in us through, his, through Christ's Spirit. In everything the believer does, this covenant consciousness, this antithetical consciousness, and if you will, going back and tying together this epistemological self-consciousness, 
defines who I am as a believer and servant of Christ. As I interact with the unbelieving world, I have the liberty of conscience to function under the righteousness and holiness of God's person, word, and will. It is within this maxim that the believer must live in interaction with an unbelieving world each day. Hence, a commitment to Christ's truth is the starting point of the antithesis that runs through the way. I like to put this, and this sort of comes out of the Kyperian tradition, that runs through my being each day in everything I do. Herein, we trust the Spirit concerning what we say and what we do as we wrestle with the boundaries of the antithesis in our life of faith, Mm. as we live in the liberty and freedom of Christ's righteousness and word. Now, obviously, this isn't addressing all the concrete issues that can be raised here. But uh, I, did, I did appreciate Dr. Hart's compliment of me in the sense of bringing up the issue of Christian liberty and freedom. And here I'm trying to bring it to bear also on this issue as the believer works out, uh, works out into the world itself in terms of wherever the Lord has called them uh, with culture and everything else. I hope that's, that's least understood. Mm-hmm. And now, and that now brings me to a, uh, a very brief comment in, uh, with uh, Reverend Wilson. Um, for Reverend Wilson, I get the idea that as the people go forth, as he says from the preaching of the word, and engage the culture, that engagement has the meaning of moving towards, however long it may be, he was very clear in pointing that out, uh, moving towards the transformation of culture as the post-mill understands it. Or perhaps we should say, as terms of his position of post-mill understands it. I would present the thesis that Christians can engage the culture without placing it in a transformation model. In fact, in my judgment, the believer engages the culture daily with their identity in Christ from from their status in the heavenly places. The culture of heaven is engaging the culture of this world in the identity of the believer. But in my judgment, the culture, the creation, the earthly realm cannot be transformed. The scripture's prophetic word has already told us the destiny of this world and its unbelieving cultural manifestations, and it will be consumed. The posture of the believer as we remain in this world is that of, of the suffering Christ. Philippians chapter 3, 7 through 11. But in the power of Christ's resurrection, we are already exalted into the heavenly places. 
It is only in the power of Christ's resurrection and ascension can we live the life of suffering, that which is our destiny here on earth, that which is our pilgrimage. So I, as I said previously in another session, as we move along in the biblical canon, the book of Hebrews and its emphasis upon the priestly ministry of Christ from heaven for those who live by faith becomes a powerful message, a powerful message for the pilgrimage people here on earth who are living in suffering, who need their mediator Christ. Now, let me close with this thought. I would like all those who advocate some model of reform cultural transformationalism, I'm not only just thinking here concerning Reverend Wilson, but also I'm even thinking here more broadly out there of the models that, are, that exist even with respect to neo-Calvinism. I would like them to think about this in the progressive revelation of God's word and activity. I would like them to think about noting the gracious condescension theme of God's activity throughout Scripture. There is a reason why all the benefits of redemption come from the Lord, that everything in terms of those benefits come as gift. The gift of sovereign grace from heaven itself. There is a reason the people of God's eyes are always being fixed upon heaven in biblical revelation. They are to seek and set their entire existence upon the things that are above in heaven where Christ is seated on the right hand of the Father. If the transformation of the world, the restoration of the creation, is dependent at all in any, in any form upon the activity of humans, then biblically speaking, you no longer have grace. And hence, that is why even you see the new heavens and the new earth being pictured in God's word very clearly as condescending, even if it, takes, if it comes into this creation in some form. It's condescending. It comes as gift. It comes as something new. It comes only as grace. Right, right. It has to be this way. It has to be this way in a gospel of grace. It has to be this way if what we will behold will be beyond anything we can imagine. It has to be this way to truly appreciate what Christ has reserved for us in terms of our inheritance of him and his glory. So I would like transformationalists to really think 
upon that biblical theme because I really do believe that transformationalist doctrines, wherever they appear, even in Reformed thought, have in it a notion of personal works in terms of the contribution of the new heaven and new earth. Thank you for listening to this installment in our Christ and Culture discussion. And let us know what you think by emailing us at mail at reformedforum.org or twittering us at Reformed Forum. And again, Christ the Center is listener-supported, and we would ask that you would help us to continue to produce and distribute content like this series by sending us a donation to Reformed Forum at P.O. Box 27422, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19118. You can also visit us online, and at the top of our page, you'll see a nice little donate button if you would like to give electronically. But thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to having you back next time on Christ the Center.